Hello, and welcome to Litigator Libations, a podcast designed to provide short, substantive, and hopefully helpful guidance on discrete litigation topics. This podcast is meant to be educational and to help litigators think creatively about the law and their cases. It is not meant to direct how anyone should actually litigate in a particular case. This podcast is also unofficial. The ideas are the thoughts of the presenters and do not represent the views of the Department of the Air Force or the Trial Defense Division. Litigation is an art, and each litigator must develop his or her own style. Always do what you believe is in the best interests of your client, consistent with the law, and your professional and ethical obligations. I am Daryl Johnson from the Air Force's Defense Council Assistance Program, and it is 5 o'clock here in the National Capital Region, which means it's time to sit back, pour a beverage, and talk about defensive litigation and advocacy. The Air Force Court of Criminal Appeals issued its second published opinion of the year with United States v. Valentin Andino. I think it is interesting to read published cases and think, why did they choose to publish this opinion? I have some thoughts on that, which I will share in a little bit. Before we get into that discussion, let's just briefly acknowledge one of the bigger decisions of the year so far from the Court of Appeals of the Armed Forces. And that is its 30 January 2023 decision in United States v. St. Jean. That's been covered already within the Air Force Trial Defense Division in the newsletter, but we may still come back to it in a future episode of Litigator Libations. The case has some colorful and broad dicta relating to Military Rule of Evidence 412 motions, including, quote, the fact that a person consented to kissing on one day is not particularly probative of the issue of whether that person consented to full sexual intercourse a day later, end of quote. But if you read both the CAF decision and the lower Army Court decision, nothing in that language or decision changes the analysis under Military Rule of Evidence 412, and there are many reasons to read St. Jean narrowly in light of its differences from a lot of other cases. For instance, the allegation of sexual assault in St. Jean was while the named victim claimed to have been passed out. The defense in St. Jean did not claim reasonable mistake of fact as to consent, and the defense strategy seemed to focus more on calling the named victim a liar than illustrating consent. But we will leave that case for another day. Getting back to our discussion on United States v. Valentin Andino, I will admit that my first thought as to why it was published by the Air Force Court was that it just has a cool name. United States v. Valentin Andino. It just sounds cool. But I doubt that was the reason. The appellant, Valentin Andino, raised three issues, but only two were addressed by the court because it returned the case to the chief trial judge of the Air Force. The two issues addressed were, one, whether the record of trial was substantially complete, and two, whether the appellant was entitled to relief based on the government failing to serve him with the victim's submission of matters prior to the convening authority signing the decision on action memorandum. The issue that went unaddressed was whether the charges were legally and factually sufficient, but we will have to wait until the case comes back up to find out how that ends. Regarding the record of trial issue, it was very straightforward. Although the court reporter certified the record of trial was accurate and complete in accordance with RCM 1112B and C1, the disc purporting to be the recording of all open sessions of the court actually only contained the arraignment and no other audio recordings were included. So yeah, the record was not substantially complete. The government conceded the issue, because they had to, and agreed that the record should be returned for corrections. FSICA agreed with the parties and ordered the record returned to the chief trial judge for correction. 
It seems unlikely that this straightforward issue prompted the court to publish the opinion. It was very straightforward. The second issue arose because after trial, the victim in the case submitted matters to the convening authority pursuant to RCM 1106A, more conveniently 1106A. Although four paragraphs of her submission were simply repeating her victim impact statement that she provided to the court, she went further by adding two paragraphs encouraging the convening authority to not grant any clemency and asked the convening authority to affirm the conviction and sentence imposed, in part because the crime would affect her for the rest of her life. The victim submitted her matters on 24 May 2021, but it appears they were never provided to the appellant. Four days later, the appellant, unaware of the victim's RCM 1106A submission, submitted a request for deferment of forfeitures until entry of judgment pursuant to RCM 1103B and Article 57B. As asserted by the appellant, his request was to try and mitigate the financial impacts of transitioning out of the Air Force. The appellant did not submit a request for clemency. On 3 June 2021, the convening authority signed a decision on action memorandum in which he took no action on the findings and sentence. In the memorandum, the convening authority also denied the appellant's deferment request, stating, quote, Airman Valentin Andino requested that I defer forfeiture of pay for a period of six months. I hereby deny the request for deferment. After considering the factors outlined in RCM 1103D, With regard to deferment, in particular the nature of the offenses and their effect on the victim, I find Airman Valentin Endino did not meet his burden of showing his interests in deferral outweigh the community's interest in imposition of the punishment on its effective date. End of quote. The convening authority specifically noted that prior to making his decision, he consulted with his staff judge advocate and considered matters timely submitted by both the accused and the victim. The military judge entered judgment on 10 June 2021. Over a month later, on 16 July 2021, the appellant's defense counsel was finally provided with the victim's 24 May submission that was submitted to and considered by the convening authority. There was no indication that the appellant was ever provided with the victim's submission. On appeal, the appellant submitted a declaration in his appeal to the Air Force Court stating that he did not recall ever being served with the victim's submissions and explained how he would have responded had he been given the opportunity to do so. His response included things like the fact that he was also affected by the conviction and would be for the rest of his life because he's now a sex offender, and it would have provided specific information regarding the financial hardships he was about to face as he transitioned out of the Air Force to his home of record in Puerto Rico. The opinion is interesting because it highlights how a request for deferment of adjudged forfeitures is not a request for clemency. I believe this is why the court published the opinion, because it clarifies that even though the rules may not specifically say so, if the convening authority considers matters submitted by a crime victim before acting on a deferment request, then the convening authority must provide your client with notice of those matters and an opportunity to respond before the convening authority acts on the deferment request. An accused has the right to submit a request for deferment of adjudged forfeitures under Article 57b1 and Rule for Courts Martial 1103d. That rule explains that the client must demonstrate that deferment is in the interest of both the accused and the community and that those interests outweigh the community's interest in imposition of the punishment on its effective date. The rule sets out a number of factors that the convening authority may consider when acting on a deferment request, including the nature of the offense and its impact on the victim. 
The convening authority is required to rule on the client's request for deferment and, if denied, the convening authority must give his or her reason for denying the request so that the appellate courts may review the decision under an abuse of discretion standard, or really any reviewing authority, even if it's not up to the appellate courts. Clemency, or what's left of it, on the other hand, is addressed in Articles 60A and 60B. And Rule for Courts Martial 1106 allows the client to submit matters to the convening authority for his or her consideration when exercising the authority to reduce the sentence or set aside a finding of guilt or change a finding of guilt to a lesser included offense. When permitted, those actions amount to clemency exercised by the convening authority. And whether to grant clemency is the sole discretion of the convening authority and is not subject to review by the appellate courts. Rule 1106A allows the victim to submit matters to the convening authority, and it requires the convening authority to consider those matters before exercising his or her clemency authority. If the victim does submit matters, that submission must be provided to the defense, and the client has five days to respond. The discussion to Rule 1106A states that the convening authority, quote, may not consider matters adverse to the accused without providing the accused an opportunity to respond, end of quote. But here, Rule 1106A isn't directly on point because that rule allows the victim to submit matters to the convening authority for him to consider before deciding whether to grant any form of clemency, not a request for deferment. In fact, there is no rule that specifically allows or forbids a victim from submitting matters regarding a request for deferment of forfeitures, reduction in grade or confinement. Also, here the victim's submission did not specifically mention the deferment request. It simply asked the convening authority not to provide clemency in the form of a lighter sentence. Indeed, the victim's submission couldn't have mentioned the deferment request because the victim submitted her matters before the appellant even requested the deferment. So the convening authority was not required to consider the victim's submission when acting on the deferment request, but he did. Under RCM 1106A C3, quote, the convening authority shall ensure any matters submitted by a crime victim under this subsection be provided to the accused as soon as practicable. End of quote. That clearly did not happen because the victim submitted her matters on 24 May 2022, and those were never provided to the appellant. But recall that the appellant did not submit clemency. So was the appellant prejudiced by the failure to provide him with the victim's submission of matters? The government argued he couldn't be prejudiced because he got exactly the clemency he sought. None. Because RCM 1106A pertains to clemency, the real question wasn't whether the appellant was entitled to relief due to the government's violation of that rule, but rather whether the convening authority abused his discretion by considering the victim's clemency submission when acting on the deferment request without giving the appellant an opportunity to respond. That may sound like the same thing, but it isn't. If the convening authority had not considered the victim's submission when acting on the deferment request, the government's failure to provide the appellant with those matters in accordance with RCM 1106A wouldn't really matter and no relief would be warranted. Therefore, it's not the violation of RCM 1106A that compelled the Air Force to grant relief. Instead, the Air Force Court found that it is the concepts of basic fairness and procedural due process that require service and an opportunity to respond in the context of a deferment request. In assessing prejudice, the court considered the appellant's submission asserting the specific information regarding the financial hardships that he anticipated he would face as he transitioned to civilian life in Puerto Rico. The court would 
quote, not speculate on what the convening authority might have done had the appellant been given the opportunity to comment on the victim's submission of matters, end of quote. The result was a remand for new post-trial processing that will give the appellant a chance to rebut the victim's submission. Here are three quick takeaways from this case for practitioners. First, do not give up just because you do not have a rule directly on point. Here, there was no rule directly on point, but the Air Force Court granted relief based on the concepts of fairness and procedural due process. The defense made law in this case because they pointed out the injustice of allowing a convening authority to consider essentially secret matters when acting on a deferment request. And now it is the law of the land in the Air Force that if the convening authority considers new matters when acting on a deferment request, the convening authority must give that information to the defense and allow them an opportunity to respond before acting on that request. Second, in my view, there is no reason not to submit a request for clemency in every case where clemency is available. In this case, the appellant asked the Air Force Court to not approve his reduction to E-1 as a remedy to the RCM 1106A violation but the court correctly pointed out that that remedy speaks to clemency, not the deferment request. Because the appellant had not sought clemency, there was no prejudice, and that remedy was not appropriate. Even if you believe relief is unlikely, submitting the request may provide appellate counsel with fodder for raising an issue on appeal or allow for additional avenues of relief. Finally, and this is a lesson for post-trial submissions generally, part of the success that you see in Valentin Andino stems from turning fouls by the other side into articulable prejudice. When you learn something new after trial that you think was messed up about your case, the target is always to articulate what would have been different and why, if you had that information or if that process had been done correctly, your client might have received a more favorable result. Without it, appellate courts can skip addressing the issue altogether and avoid taking on the error based on a lack of prejudice. Okay, I'm now going to hand it over to Major Alan Abrams, who's going to discuss taking advantage of gotcha moments at trial. Hi, this is Major Alan Abrams, and I'm here with this week's advocacy segment. Sorry if my voice is sounding a little bit off this week. I'm getting over a cold. Uh, But this week we're going to be talking about gotcha statements by witness that were impeaching. Sometimes the witnesses that we're trying to impeach say something that's just an overshare. Sometimes it's a super inconsistent statement. We've talked about that sort of thing coming up in a prior series of episodes. For those who are newer to the podcast, that would be episodes 3, 4, 6, 7, and 8. Sometimes, though, that overshare by a witness is when a prosecution says the quiet part out loud, and they admit that he or she has a real axe to grind with an accused. So we've got a question about just this sort of scenario that we thought we'd take on. Let's say the gotcha statement for purposes of our scenario is this. It's a drug case, and the only evidence of the drug use is one witness testifying to an airman's drug use. Now, let's say that they used to be friends. Let's say that the witness, who we'll call the accuser, just to keep things simple, has an axe to grind. That's because the airman, the accused airman in this instance, who we'll call Airman Smith, cheated with the accuser's girlfriend, and they ran off together, leaving the accuser bitter and alone. So the accuser texted Airman Smith, you stole my girl, and now I'm going to steal your life. And yes, I apologize for the inflection with your life at the end. It's, it's just a generational thing from Varsity Blues. 
Now, we're at a trial and the accuser is testifying. So the question that we're trying to tackle is, how can you use this statement to impeach the accuser? This statement by the accuser, it's just awesome. It's a gotcha in the sense of being an explicit admission to a motive to misrepresent the truth, to borrow the language from Military Rule of Evidence 609, rather than something that we have to piece together by painting a picture with just their acts so that we can infer their motive or basing it off of some circumstances. They've just come out and said the thing. So the temptation might be to just ask the witness about the statement. In other words, isn't it true that you said you stole my girl and now I'm going to steal your life? That's certainly the most to-the-point route, if we're going by GPS, but we're not going by GPS. We're dealing with the rules of evidence. And as with any sort of evidence, we have to look at what this statement is through the lens of those rules. So first, it is definitely a relevant statement. It's about as relevant as we can get because we're talking about motive under Rule 609. That's especially true in a case where we're impeaching the sole accuser, which is the case in our hypothetical, and in turn likely disputing the credibility of the accuser, likely under the strategy of a lying liar who lies. That's not always the case. Sometimes it's just that they're mistaken, but, you know, for purposes of our fact pattern, that's certainly the case. The second thing is recognizing that this statement by the accuser raises the issue of hearsay, and whether it is hearsay. A hearsay statement is something said out of court being offered for the truth of the matter asserted. In our scenario, the earlier text message by the accuser is certainly an out-of-court statement. Now, I've seen counsel working through the other half of the hearsay rule about whether the statement is being offered for the truth of the matter asserted, and I've sometimes seen the wheels just spinning and falling off in court. And that's because they're fighting what they know to be true. Yes, it is being offered for the truth of the matter asserted. But I really, really want to ask it. Can I just say it's for the effect of the listener or that it's not being offered for the truth of the matter asserted? Well, if you say it's not being offered for the truth of the matter asserted, be prepared for what comes next. And that's articulating what that non-truth of the matter asserted purpose is. Normally, it's some kind of follow-on by whoever heard or read the statement at issue. That would be effect on the listener, but that's not the sole universe of things that would be permissible for a non-hearsay purpose. If you're offering the statement, though, in order to be able to then argue, see that thing that they said is really what's going on here? Well, then that tells you it's being offered for the truth of the matter asserted. Before we circle back to our hypothetical, let's quickly turn to the Army Court of Criminal Appeals for some clarification on this point. And that clarification comes from the case of United States versus Reyes, 78 MJ 831, which is a 2019 case. So the Army Court, it's looking at whether out-of-court statements can be evidence of motive or intent, or at least that's part of their analysis there. And in other words, the statements at issue that we're talking about, they were offered to show motive, just motive, not for the truth of the matter asserted. So in a footnote, the court illustrates what that sort of thing looks like in in the proper context. So their scenario involves this. There's a Sergeant Smith and testifying about something that a specialist, so someone lower ranking, Specialist Jones, said to Sergeant Smith. Specifically, Sergeant Jones says, Sergeant Smith, you are the worst sergeant in the Army. That statement is circumstantial evidence that Specialist Jones really does not like Sergeant Smith. But it would not be evidence that Sergeant Smith is the worst sergeant in the Army. That purpose, being the worst sergeant in the Army, that would be the truth of the matter asserted. 
that's different, of course, from our hypothetical. A gotcha statement like, you stole my girl and now I'm going to steal your life would, in most circumstances, be offered for the truth of the matter asserted. It's not circumstantial evidence of motive like the army court was talking about in Reyes. It's direct evidence of motive. And that's not to say that it's impossible to tweak our hypothetical where you can try to backdoor in the statement as, say, effect on the listener. That, though, just to use that purpose of effect on the listener, would be contingent on whatever the listener, in our case the reader of the text message, did or felt in response. But even then, the cost of going that route is, while the fact finder has heard the gotcha statement admitting to motive, it's not technically substantive evidence and could be subject to a limiting instruction. So how do you deal with these statements? Well, setting aside the issue of how much depth you want to build into your questions, and that is an important consideration, the shorthand trick is to, one, cut the phrase, you said, from your question, and two, replace it with either the substance of the witness's statement uh, or a phrase suggesting having to do with just a state of mind, like you feel, your view was, or something like that. So what does that trick do? It cuts out the hearsay part. The question is no longer calling for an out-of-court statement. We're asking for the underlying substance. So let's use our hypothetical to walk through that. Again, that statement from our hypothetical is, you stole my girl, and now I'm going to steal your life. Here's one way to start the impeachment based on that statement. You had a girlfriend. She cheated on you. She cheated on you with Airman Smith. Airman Smith stole your girlfriend. You were bothered by Airman Smith doing that. You were intent on getting revenge on Airman Smith. You were going to steal Airman Smith's life from him. Here's an alternative way of doing that. You had a girlfriend. She cheated on you. She cheated on you with Airman Smith. You felt Airman Smith stole your girlfriend. You were bothered by Airman Smith doing that. You were intent on getting revenge on Airman Smith. Your view was you were going to steal Airman Smith's life from him. In terms of preparation for this line of inquiry, your work is not quite done with these questions, though. You still should be prepared for the witness, the accuser in our hypothetical, to give you some pushback, perhaps with a no, I didn't, or I don't recall that. But that's where this line of questioning can get kind of fun, uh, at, at least as an advocate, because you already have the gotcha prior statement in your back pocket. If the accuser agrees with you, of course, you don't need that statement. You already got all of the substantive evidence that the statement would have given you. It's a little less punchy, but you can make up for that by putting it all together in argument. But if the accuser fights you in some way, then you get to impeach the witness on the prior statement. In this case, it would be a prior inconsistent statement. So at that point, with the witness denying making the statement or denying remembering it, your avenue of impeachment is Rule 613 from the Military Rules of Evidence for prior inconsistent statements. Then the quote gets to come in, either with the witness admitting to the prior gotcha statement, once you basically put it in their face, or with you proving it up. While the statement is not technically substantive at this point, it can be very powerful because of two things. First, you've put the motive before the fact finder. Second, because the witness is being just so squirrely as to seem to not even take ownership over their own motive and statements, that the witness becomes not just a witness with a motive that you've alleged, but also one who has been shown to act on that motive by becoming a lying liar who cannot, who is lying about their very own motive. The proof is in the pudding at that point. And now at that point, even though you're still left with this evidence in a non-substantive form, you'll at least have exhausted your options, and getting it in this way is your next best alternative. Thank you for listening, and I hope it was helpful. 
Until we meet again, this is Daryl the Decap signing off. Check in with us again in two weeks when we cover a new topic. Until then, any ideas, comments, or suggestions you have are always welcome. You can email me at william.johnson.147 at us.af.mil. Thanks again for listening, and thank you for all you do. I wish you the best of luck litigating your cases. skies drive the dark clouds far away and will you please say hello to the friends that I know